Are you a healthcare organization struggling to achieve success? What if I told you that success not only depends on strategy, but also on the right mindset? At the Mindset Gap, their team of seasoned consultants understand the critical role mindset plays in achieving organizational excellence by empowering your workforce to think innovatively, embrace change, and adapt to new challenges. So imagine your workplace, one where your employees and patients thrive, where creativity and productivity go hand in hand, and where obstacles become opportunities. Don't let your organization fall into the mindset gap. Take the first step towards unlocking your potential today and email assist at themindsetgap.com with the referral code GENCAN20 to schedule a consultation. Welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. This is a safe space where we invite healthcare providers to unapologetically be themselves after the working day. My name is Jennifer George, and each week I will connect you with guests and stories that will help transform your stress to success and fulfillment. Are you with me? Grab your drink of choice and let's chat. Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you today with Dr. Amy King. Amy is a licensed psychologist who works with healthcare organizations and clinicians around wellness, staff vitality, and creating trauma-responsive spaces. Amy's current work is in promoting resilience within primary care medical homes through partnership and collaboration. On this episode, Amy and I talk about how trauma impacts medicine. We also talk about resilience and how we as healthcare providers can begin to acknowledge and recognize our own trauma so that we may continue to better serve those in our care. You don't want to miss this episode. It was a great conversation with Amy. So grab your drink of choice and join us. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Like, so excited. I've been looking forward to this conversation since we connected. You know, trauma-informed care and resilience, I think, just go so much hand in hand. And I think you've been such a powerful voice in this area. I've been listening to your podcast, and it's a lot of information I've been digesting. So I'm hoping we can uh, have a conversation about it, and I can better educate myself and others and learn how we can take care of ourselves and continue to take care of patients in this area. Me too. I'm excited. So tell us first more about yourself, though. Sure. So I'm a licensed psychologist by training. Um, I have a very small private practice still, but most of my time is spent at the intersection of uh, pediatric and healthcare organizations, as well as early educators, helping them understand what trauma is, how it presents, and then what do we do about it once we know it's there? We can't just know what it looks like and identify it. We have to be able to ameliorate it and respond to it as well. So that's what I spend most of my time doing is working with the folks that intersect in the lives of patients and families. 
Yeah. And a lot of times that's us as healthcare providers and we end up mm-hmm. in those situations. And I don't think we're, you know, I'm speaking for myself, obviously, but sometimes I don't realize that I'm in that situation until I've reflected on it. But I think I'm more aware than I used to be, like in terms Absolutely. of being more proactive that way. So can you tell me more about like, literally like what trauma-informed care is? Sure, sure. So there's some kind of um, formal definitions from SAMHSA and other medical models. But really what I want providers to think about is this. Mm -hmm. Um, First, trauma is everywhere. It's ubiquitous, right? When we look at trauma and adversity and we look at like the adverse childhood experiences study, when we look at intersections of historical and intergenerational traumas, there's hardly a person that I could think of that hasn't been impacted by trauma in some capacity. So the first one is just knowing that trauma is everywhere, that whether someone is overtly talking to you about adversities that they faced or they're kind of keeping it to themselves, they're holding it, they have experienced it. The second thing is just recognizing that there are things that we can look for to recognize that trauma is present. Um, And then the third thing is to just respond in a way that's more compassionate that's strength-based, that's giving people the benefit of the doubt, because that's what actually then resists re-traumatizing folks that may have already experienced trauma from medical facilities or organizations or previous providers. Um, So we want to just know that it's everywhere, know how to respond and what it looks like, and then resist re-traumatizing folks because we're not well-prepared. I love how you um, explain that in kind of a certain order for me. It gives me comfort to know that trauma is everywhere because that's truly what I believe. I believe Mm -hmm. that I don't know anybody who hasn't experienced trauma is kind of how I've always felt about it. So knowing that I think helps me to be more aware, self-aware, but also aware of others and a little more empathetic and compassionate. But can you tell me more than about that? Like, how do we identify like someone who maybe has, who has experienced trauma or is maybe maybe being even re-traumatized by a conversation or a memory or, you know, a movement or something that sometimes we provoke in therapies or in medicine? Sure, sure. So first of all, there's differentiation of like individual trauma. Some people have experienced individual traumas, um, whether it be something like a single occurrence, like a house fire or a car accident, right? And some people have um, experienced complex trauma, which is uh, trauma and stress that is built up over the course of someone's life with little to no access to support. Um, So there may be individual trauma, and then there may be um, historical trauma or intergenerational trauma, which is trauma that's affecting either an entire family, in the case of intergenerational trauma, and generations of them think about things like substance use, or historical trauma, which is traumas that have been um, inflicted on entire groups of people because of their race, because of their ethnicity, because of the way that they identify like an LGBTQ plus group. And so how that might look in a medical system Mm -hmm. is important, right? So it might present like a person that seems agitated or reactionary. It might look like someone who is argumentative. It might look like someone who you look at as a provider and you're like, why aren't they following my medical advice? Why why do they have what we call, you know, poor medical compliance? Non-compliance, yeah. Non-compliance. Why aren't they getting better faster, right? So it might be like what we would call like mistreatment outcomes or poor treatment outcomes, Um, or it might be um, families that are reactionary or blaming other people for their problems, or 
Unfortunately, sometimes we don't see it manifesting at all. It's families who don't come to an appointment, who aren't providing a, a full history, uh, potentially, who are, you know, avoiding interactions with various providers or not receiving and avoiding care. So it can be externalized, mm-hmm. right? anger, frustration, overtly refusing, or what we call non-compliance, or it could be internalizing. But what I always want people to be thinking about is this. You don't have to know and remember all those signs and symptoms, right, of what trauma can look like. What I want you to think about is this. If you as a provider or even somebody at your front office desk or your billing and coding person is having a negative interaction with a patient, please know that people do well when they can. Mm -hmm. And if they are angry or defensive or non-compliant, we should be pausing and getting curious and asking, what else is behind this? Mm-hmm. What's another reason that this person might be acting this way or behaving this way or avoiding interactions with me? There's probably something else going on behind that. And that's where I think we can be a lot more compassionate. Yeah. And I think sometimes, and I, again, I'm speaking for myself because I've, I've learned over the years to be more compassionate and to take my ego out of it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not saying I'm perfect. And I, I still like can be personally affected by things like, like um, non-compliance or, um, you know, avoidance and stuff like that. But at the same time, I'm now able to have the conversations with my patients or with families. Like that's one thing I can say I do, which I, I find a lot of people in healthcare, a lot of practitioners from my experiences don't as well. Like, you know, we're afraid of maybe re-aggravating or causing even more aggravation, but there's always, I find a deeper reason. And oftentimes it isn't our issue. Like it's not our fault per se, but yeah. It's hard, right? It's hard. It's very hard. When someone is being verbally assaultive or when someone is in care, or you've said, you know, this is your diabetes management treatment to an adult and they're just like coming in and their blood sugars are still off. And, you know, you're worried about them getting more sick it can be really confusing and frustrating. If I may, what I often talk to people about is what's called the suitcase analogy. Every day, we all, you and me and every single person we interact with, pick up two suitcases. In one hand, it's like my current stressors, right? So maybe I had a fight with my spouse this morning. Maybe I'm worried about one of my kids passing a class. Maybe my mom's really sick. Maybe I have financial worries or housing worries or job worries. That's in my one suitcase, my short-term stressors. And in my other hand, I carry this other suitcase. Some of us have heavier suitcases than others. That's my long-term adversity, Mm. right? If I've experienced racism, if I've experienced uh, marginalization, if I've experienced sexual trauma, if I've experienced physical abuse or domestic violence, I'm carrying that stuff too. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to move towards another individual. And if we're both on our A game, and we have a negative interaction or less than positive, neither one of us take it personally. And we just say, oh my gosh, you must just have a lot of stuff you're carrying with you today. Right, yeah. But on our not so good days, right? One of us takes it personally or doesn't pause and ask for context or questions. Mm -hmm. And now you have a bunch of miscommunication and potential re-traumatization of a person or frustration or overwhelm that wasn't necessarily intended, but is definitely present. So if we all kind of thought in our heads, like, gosh, I'm going to go have, you know, coffee with Jennifer. And all of a sudden you call me and you're like, I can't make it today. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think, gosh, you know, what's the matter with her? Like, <laughs> right. why is she not? Instead, if I just reframe that to, I wonder if she's carrying something today. Right. 
Yeah. Rather than taking it personally. That's right. Yeah. I don't even have to know what it is, right? It might even be my business, but I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. that you're doing the best you can in any given moment. And so am I. Yeah. I love how you said that because I find, I was just going to say that I find if things are going well, right? Like if, if you're in, but we're working with people who have been through life changing experiences. So they're carrying a lot of load there. Right. Um, and not only patients, and I kind of want to shift the conversation a little bit because obviously that still applies to both, but all ourselves as well as healthcare mm-hmm. providers Absolutely. and you know what we, the long-term adversity that we've been through over the years, and I'm talking not even just through COVID, but even before this, you know, burnout and moral injury and stuff has been an issue. So you talked a little bit about like personal trauma, but can you talk a little bit about collective trauma by chance? Because I, you know, healthcare providers, I, I hear that a lot, right. That we've, we've gone through a collective trauma as well in this space. And if you could speak to that and how we can help one another, that would be great. Yeah. I mean, I think about, so many physicians and healthcare professionals I've worked with in the past three years, certainly with the COVID pandemic, but even before then, as you mentioned, people were already burned out in medicine, Mm -hmm. already short-staffed, already overwhelmed with electronic health records and medical bureaucracies, right? So I think about two things, collective trauma, which is this trauma that we're all experiencing as healthcare providers, feeling like I want to do more. And I, I think my patient or my clinic or my hospital deserves more, but my hands are tied because of time or understaffing or resources resources or support, that creates a lot of collective trauma within a field or an organization. And then there's compounding trauma, right? which is I'm already feeling overwhelmed and overburdened. And now there's COVID. And now there's vaccine hesitancy. And now there's medical misinformation. And now there's distrust of health providers. Mm -hmm. So we have both collective within our groups and then compounding because of other things that are happening in the medical culture or even in our larger society, right? right? Those are called compounding stressors. And so unfortunately, and I use that term, it's probably underscoring or, or minimizing, there have been both in the last couple of years, a lot of collective trauma, a lot of compounding stressors for healthcare professionals. And so when I talk with them about re-traumatization, right. I always say, Let's just start with you. Yeah. Right? Okay. You're you're going to potentially re-traumatize a patient or a family if you're not being more compassionate in how you think. But first, we have to like just acknowledge what you've been through. Yeah. And and this space of, you know, let's just encourage a, a healthcare provider to like breathe more or eat more vegetables or be more resilient. Like mm. that's not working. Right? <laughs> I was, was going to say, right. It, it always falls. I find it and you know, and this is part of the reason why I do this podcast is that I feel like, again, we put the onus on ourselves, right. The responsibility to bear this trauma and also to continue to, to operate, you know, business as usual at the same time is, you know, is the, is, is a part of the issue too, right? Is that yeah. it's, it kind of, we kind of put it on ourselves. And I, I know that speaks to resilience a little bit too. Um, but yeah, I, I was just, just given your experience with healthcare organizations, do you find that through your work, you're able to obviously have the, the individuals acknowledge what's happened to them and take care of themselves, but also at a, at an organizational level, how do you also speak to that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, professionals aren't just putting them on it on themselves, right? right? 
inherently in medicine, there's a culture of taking on too much, right? There's a culture of like what we call healthcare heroism, right? It's like, you can do more and you should sleep less and you shouldn't use the bathroom. You should need water and you can go long periods of time without eating. And we kind of, you know, idolize that when in fact, part of being human is eating and sleeping and using the bathroom, right? Why would that be less true? And so yes, yes, healthcare professionals do that to themselves, but also the organization does it. And especially what I've noticed in the past three years is, you know what, you should take better care of yourself. Like we want to help you. You should take better care of yourself. And it still puts the onus on the individual from the organization. And I got to tell you, if I had to have one more provider be told to go to like a resilience seminar, right? (laughs) they're about to pull out their hair. They're like, I'm not going to do like a coloring sheet or a, right? Really what it means at an organizational level is that we begin to look at policies that create harm. Okay. I'll give you an example. You're a pediatrician and you work in the PICU or you're a nurse and you're in the PICU and you experience three deaths in one day. Is there a place to process that? Is there a peer support group? Or do we just say, well, this is what happens in the PICU during the middle of a pandemic. Kids die Mm -hmm. and we move on, right? Mm -hmm. In a more compassionate environment, even if there's the pace within that floor that we have to continue to provide care to other people, there's also space to say, let's go back and revisit this. Mm-hmm. Right? There's there's mentorship available. There's peer support available. There's time available. There's allowing that person to take the next day off because they've ex- been exposed to three deaths in that day. Um, There's a humanizing principle where someone is coming in who's the director of that department or the chief of whatever in that department coming in and saying, this was a lot for our group this this day. Let's Mm -hmm. figure out a way to process that. And the research shows that just a one and done processing can actually be unethical. Then you're just opening up a wound and then leaving that person. You have to continue to provide peer support. You have to continue to provide community and collaboration where it's okay to say, this feels hard for me. I'm, I'm feeling really vulnerable or I was activated by this particular patient loss because it reminded me of my grandpa or my mom or myself or whatever the case may be. If we don't provide that space, we're just going to continue to have healthcare professionals burn out. That's just one example right. of a way that an organization can do harm or do good. Right. And so do you find through your work that um, they're, they're receptive to that? To, yeah, to- yes and no. Oh, okay. Yes and no. Both sides. (laughs) I was hoping you were going to say just yes. (laughs) Okay. Oh my gosh! I wish I. I would love to be out of a job, right? I would be out (laughs) of a job if if everybody was saying yes to that. Yeah. Unfortunately, I do a lot of talks with healthcare professionals who are like, "Oh my gosh, we're so good at being trauma informed or trauma responsive to our patients, but we're horrible with ourselves and each other." Or The other day I was talking with a clinical group and they said, you know, we understand the importance of this information, but our leadership team isn't giving us space to do that. And so then they feel like their hands are tied. Right. So they can only do so much. Yeah, absolutely. And that's when I think they feel fatigued. That's when I think it's like, I understand the importance of this, but I'm not sure how. Mm -hmm. So what I see when it works really, really well, Jennifer, it's happening from the top, right? Administrators and leaders are saying, gosh, we know that this is not like an RVU, right? That we're going to put in this dollar and we're going to get this dollar out. It's like, we're going to invest organizationally in the care and keeping of the people who are taking care of other people. 
And we're going to see a long-term offset from that. We're going to see less pain, less burnout, more retention of our employees, people who are coming to work and fulfilling their mission, better patient satisfaction scores, because our healthcare professionals are going to feel taken care of. Um, But it's not something that's a dollar for dollar, something that we see, right? It's something that the leadership and the higher level C-suite have to really be invested in. Exactly. And and I think the long term is so important because of issues like retention and people mm-hmm. leaving the professions and not having enough qualified staff in certain areas, perhaps. You know, I just think we have to invest long term in the well-being of of your staff, right? Of your team. Um, and I think so through your coaching and your support and your education, do you do that? Like just because you said you had a clinical group. So do you do that just like, do you only do it with the healthcare providers or how do you also educate yeah. um, the C-suites as well? Great question. I do both. So okay. sometimes I'm being called in by an organization to provide consultation around what we would call organizational wellness or staff vitality, right? How do we really begin to implement change and create a trauma-informed culture? Yeah. And then I also have what's called a connected collaborative, which is a learning collaborative for healthcare professionals to come together as a community to learn about trauma-informed principles, but also just to resource with each other, get support from each other. Um, They get continuing medical education, which is like a bonus for coming, right? It makes it worth their time. Not that we need to make it (laughs) worth their time, but I I think that language, right? So so I do both. I, I want to provide consultation to organizations. And I'm going to say that because I know that not all organizations are going to be doing that, I also want to, for the individual Mm -hmm. provider to provide a space where they can come. And so I have affinity groups for physicians, for nurses, behavioral health consultants, dentists and optometrists, um, early childhood educators. So folks that are in early childhood at that intersection, and we meet once a month and we talk about various topics that they're struggling with, like grief, how to what we call the art of listening, mm-hmm. how to create boundaries in their profession, like yeah. how to say no, which is not, not taught easy. in healthcare profession. Yeah. No, definitely not. Wow. Yeah, I do a little bit of both. So I love how you still, you keep the healthcare provider in mind and um, through all of it. And that's kind of your intention throughout that is to to continue to support them, whether you're doing it through uh, the organizational structural way, through uh, leadership that way, or directly with and I, like you said, where do you digest or process these events that might have happened um, at work, right? There's not right. really that there's not really, I don't think, a consistent ability to do that, right? As much as we all want that, um, because it is a 24 hour operation and, and things are constantly happening in real time, right? Yeah. So I love that you provide that space. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, when we look at research, especially around physicians, they're not likely to seek out therapy right? One, they're worried about their license, at least in the States. Um, And two, you know, it creates a little bit of vulnerability for them, but they will seek out coaching. And so when we provide this space, especially in community, they're able to kind of be with each other. And so like last month, when we talked about grief, I had this incredible empathic OBGYN who shared you know, having to break the news to a mom at full term that she had experienced a stillbirth or would be experiencing a stillbirth and the grief that that holds 
for the patient, of course, but also like, what do you do with that as a provider? Mm -hmm. And there was just this beautiful group of other physicians who held space for her and supported her and allowed her to process her own trauma that she experienced because of it, her own grief, that otherwise I don't think there's a, a space to do that. Wow. So what do you suggest we do, Amy, individually, not to put it all on ourselves, but to keep ourselves resilient or as resilient as we can, right? Because it kind of goes hand in hand. Um, you know, we have to take care of ourselves to take care of others. And I get that. And we hear that all the time, almost to the point where I think we could, we, some of us roll our eyes, but it's so right. true. So, you know, we're, we're there to provide a sense of safety and empowerment in our partnerships with our patients and families, but what can we do for ourselves first to begin to feel that way ourselves so that we can show up better and hold that space for, for our patients? Yeah. So first of all, I think we need to reclaim the word resilience, right? Okay. I wrote an article for, for Kevin MD and I said, you know, we've, con we've confused resilience with grit and perseverance. Mm. Mm -hmm. There is not a healthcare professional that I've met in the last three years that's not gritty. Right? Right. <laughs> that's so true. Like, <laughs> making it through all the things, right? So let's yeah. not confuse resilience with grit or perseverance because you all have that already. Yeah. Resilience is meant to be in relationship with others. And it's meant to be present sometimes, but not always, right? Like today, I might feel more able to handle adversities and overcome hardship than I will tomorrow because I'm lacking sleep or clarity, or I've had a tough morning, right? I'm carrying my suitcases, as it were. And it's meant to be done in relationship. Mm -hmm. So I want, that's why I created the Learning Collaborative, right? I yeah. want healthcare professionals to, first of all, be in relationships, humanize your experience, right? If you're overwhelmed, if you're having panic attacks in the parking lot before you're going into clinic, if you're having grief, somebody else is too. Mm -hmm. And anytime we're in a relationship, we build resilience because there's less aloneness now. We're less alone with our pain. And really trauma otherwise would not be as complex or as difficult if it were experienced with someone else, right? It's we're like- shared. Yeah, shared yeah. And, and in relationship and, and connected. So that's one piece, right? I like, I want yeah. you to be, and it doesn't have to be a collaborative. It could be a book club or a wine club or a right. running club, right? Yeah. Anywhere where you're connected with other people where you can be fully human, fully yourself and I say, yesterday was rough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or I don't like being a physician today. Or why are my patients so difficult? Or I want to quit. Mm -hmm. Because that's the only way we'll prevent burnout. That's the only way we'll prevent physician suicide. It's the only way we'll prevent substance use difficulties is if people feel more often like I can be my full self. I can say this is difficult. I can reach out for support and resources. So the first part is just being connected in communities, any kind of community, reaching out for help. And the other part is how do we begin to work through feelings, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. In any capacity, right? We have to work through some of the feelings that come up. Otherwise, they just stay bottled up inside of us. Yeah. And again, doesn't mean you have to do therapy. Therapy is great. I'm a psychologist. I believe in it. Yeah. Uh, but it might be exercising. It might be singing. It might be dancing. It might be doing something creative with your brain. It might be just being in a space with another person who's loving and supportive. But it's important that we are able to work through those feelings. Wow. And then the last thing I would say, Jennifer, so community, working through feelings. And then the last thing is joy, mm -hmm. allowing yourself to genuinely experience joy. Wow. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I just had to pause on that for a moment because 
yesterday I was saying to a colleague of mine, I was excited about something. And I said, wow, this is the first time in a long time that I've been excited about something like this. And I said, I have to go with this, this feeling and whatever this, this event was that brought me excitement, because I really haven't felt that in a long time, you know, especially since COVID had started yes. and, and, and working and, and being at work and stuff. So yeah, it's been super stressful, right? So I'm hoping to just continue to make that shift more towards, you know, listening to what makes me feel good, right? Or, you know, connecting for sure, but also paying attention to that that brings me joy from within. It's almost yeah. like an involuntary joy. It's almost the way it felt, right? Like I couldn't help but be excited about something. So it was like, wow, this is the first time. And it was to the point where I actually acknowledged it and I, I recognized mm. it, right? And I'm a pretty like optimistic person. Like I, I love to laugh and things, but like I said, I really felt it in that moment. And she looked at me and was kind of like, wow, like, yeah. <laughs> and we just, we just, you know, paused for a bit about it and it was awesome. So that was beautiful how that. you said that. Yes. Well, the thing is, like, I think it's trained out of us, right? To be when we're helpers, we're just helping, helping, helping. Yeah. 100%. I promise you and me and all of us, our patients and the people that we serve are depending on us to experience joy. Because if we don't experience joy and take care of ourselves and go to those graduation parties and baby celebrations and weddings, or even small joys, like I'm going to take off all my makeup before I fall asleep. Tonight. <laughs> oh my God. That's a huge joy. <laughs> I'm going to read a really good book. Yeah. Um, small joys too. We're not going to be able to continue to help. We're not going to have the energy or capacity to help. Yeah. So we're we going to burn it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Wow. So Amy, tell me where people can reach out to you if they want to connect with you, learn more about your work and your mission and what you're doing right now to help us. Yeah, thank you. So uh, you can find my website is a really good, easy access. It's Dr. Amy LLC, doctor spelled out, Dr. Amy LLC. Um, There's free resources on there. Everything about our learning collaborative is on there. Ways to have me come and do speaking engagements is on there. If you're on social media, on all the channels, I'm at Dr. Amy LLC and you can find me there. And in the spring, you can find me uh, with a book. So I'm publishing a book through the American Academy of Pediatrics, and it'll come out in spring of 2024. Oh, that's exciting. So you'll have to come back when it comes out. (laughs) That would be great. Yeah, I would love to learn more about that. And do you have any final words before you sign off today? Anything that I that you want to say that I didn't that didn't come up? Yeah, I I would just encourage folks that are listening that engaging in some kind of self-care is never selfish. Mm-hmm. We're not asked as, as providers to be selfless. It's taught out of us and it's something that we can unlearn and relearn to be in relationship, to be in communities. And really what I want folks to know is to allow yourself to be fully human, all the parts, not yes. just identity as a worker. But for me, that means the mom part and the friend part and the sister part and the wife part, all these other parts that deserve care and keeping Mm-hmm. you're caring, keeping those other parts of you, you will feel more available and more energetic for the people that are requiring your help. Yeah, I totally connect with that and truly believe in that for yeah. sure. Thank yeah. you so much for being here. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks for everything you're doing. Yeah, and thank you for everything you're continuing to do in this space and helping us thrive, survive, thrive and find joy. So thank yeah. you.
So if you guys like this podcast, please subscribe and leave an honest review. Your feedback means everything to me. Your reviews are what moves this podcast forward, and I always appreciate receiving them. If you want to get a hold of me directly, reach out to me on social media. My handles are in the show notes, and you can always subscribe to my weekly newsletters at jenniferGeorge.co so that we can stay connected. So until next time, thank you guys so much again for your ongoing support.